0: We don't think much about it, but the fact is we use our eyes for almost everything we do. Among other things, we use them to read, drive, eat, watch TV, and work on the computer. Our eyes help us get where we're going, express our emotions, and appreciate great art. They work during the day and at night, before sunrise and at dusk, adapting to different light situations automatically. They can focus near or far. But as incredible as they are, our eyes do a lot more that we aren't even aware of. They actually tell our bodies what time it is and what to do. This is one more example of how little we actually understand about our own bodies. This is the miracle of nature at work. And this is Green Street.
1: Hello again, and welcome to Green Street. Patty and Doug Wood and our network of scientists, medical professionals, reporters, researchers, authors, activists, and others, all here on Green Street to help you understand a bit more of what is going on around you and how you and your family can live a safer and healthier life in this increasingly toxic world. Today on Green Street, we're super excited to talk with our friend Dr. Joshua Rosenthal about light, particularly blue light, and how it can really affect our bodies in ways even many doctors don't understand. As Patty said in her intro, it's one more example of the miracle of nature at work. And I guarantee you're going to learn some things you didn't know before about how your own body works and why we have to pay close attention to our eyes. That's all coming up on this edition of Green Street. But first, here's Patty with the headlines from the Green Street newsroom. What do you got for us today?
0: Well, it's always bad news, but I'm doing a little bad news and a little good news. Okay. Which is rare. Sounds good. Okay. First, with the bad news. So this is an article written by Laura Riley, uh, published in the Washington Post. The title is, Some Beef Raised Without Antibiotics Tests Positive for Antibiotics in a Study. Naturally Raised Meat Commands a Huge Financial Premium. Consumers May Not Be Getting What They Pay For. A new study in Science Magazine identified antibiotics in some of the beef cattle in a USDA-approved no-antibiotics labeling program recognized as a gold standard for restaurants and grocery stores around the country. The Science article said the findings call into question the trustworthiness of USDA-approved labeling programs that promise meat is raised without antibiotics. These findings suggest that today's Raised Without Antibiotics labels lack integrity, wrote authors Lance Price, Laura Rogers, and Kevin Lowe in the piece. Lowe is the chief executive for food testing company Food In Depth, also known as Food ID, which collected the data at the slaughterhouse. The USDA is charged with monitoring antibiotic use and verifying specific label claims such as raised without antibiotics. A spokesman from the USDA said the agency looks forward to reviewing the study more closely to determine next steps as appropriate, but said that there is no indication within the study that the meat tested is unsafe for consumers. Anne Malo, Executive Director of the Global Animal Partnership Program and also Executive Leader of Meat and Poultry for Whole Foods Markets, said the numbers in the study are very concerning quote, it's hard to ascertain how big the problem is if it is truly systemic or if we have a few bad apples. They did a seven-month pilot and they knew that there were people cheating on our program, and I wish that we could have had access to that data. This is not something that's allowed in the program at all, end quote. The study raises new questions about the rigor of USDA's oversight of programs intended to protect people from consuming unneeded antibiotics. The USDA's designation of Raised Without Antibiotics can only go to producers that sign an affidavit and submit documentation that supports their claims of being antibiotic-free. To verify labels are truthful, the USDA's Food Safety and Inspection Service verifies documentation provided with label applications, according to the USDA spokesman. The USDA can take away the label if there is evidence that claims are not truthful. The study's co-author Price says, quote, The USDA's oversight is laissez-faire. They test such a small fraction it can't even be taken seriously. And they rotate the drugs they are testing for because they can't afford to test for all of them. They just don't have the funds to do it. We raise 9 billion animals and they test hundreds of cattle, not even thousands. Gail Hansen, a veterinarian unrelated to the study and consultant on public health and infectious disease issues says, quote, the most commonly detected antibiotic found in the cattle that tested positive was tetracycline, detected in the urine post-slaughter, according to the study's supplemental material. For that antibiotic to be detected, it suggests the antibiotic had recently been administered before the cattle was moved to the slaughterhouse or the feedlot. And if an animal is supposedly raised without antibiotics, it should never have been administered antibiotics, end quote. In 2017, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration banned the use of antibiotics that are administered to make animals grow quicker, but it still happens, experts say. Producers can make more money if an animal is feed-efficient, meaning the animal gains weight faster than others when eating a particular ration of food. As steroids do for humans, antibiotics such as tetracycline can bulk some animals up more quickly. A premium is paid at every step of the Raised Without Antibiotics beef supply chain, according to Science Magazine. The rancher gets about $38 more per head of cattle. The premium the feedlot gets is $140 per animal. The meat company gets $413 more per head of cattle. And what the retailer gets varies, but could be as high as $2,700 more for the meat from that animal. That's more than 70 times the rancher's premium. Each supplier segment has a financial incentive to avoid rigorous testing for antibiotics, but especially those making the most money. Americans are increasingly willing to pay more to know that the foods they eat contain certain beneficial nutrients and ingredients, but in many cases, they will pay an even greater premium to ensure the foods they buy are free of things they don't want. Restaurants, supermarkets, and food companies are paying attention, offering bold and specific commitments about their meat and poultry. The use of antibiotics isn't great for human health because it leads to bacteria becoming more resistant to antibiotics designed to kill them. Antibiotic resistance leads to higher medical costs for humans, prolonged hospital stays, and increased numbers of deaths. A 2019 Centers for Disease Control and Prevention report found antibiotic resistant bacteria caused 2.8 million infections and 35,000 deaths annually in the United States. Sales of antibiotics for use in cattle fell in 2016 and 17, but those sales have leveled off in more recent years, according to FDA data. Boy, we feel so good, don't we, about buying grass-fed, antibiotic-free meat.
1: Let me get this straight. The USDA passed a law. Uh There's a law now that you can't use antibiotics to fatten up your cattle. Right. But people are doing it anyway because they can make more money and the USDA just doesn't have the manpower or the or the budget to test. So that's correct. So everybody's getting away with it.
0: RWA labels, which is raised without antibiotic labels, lack integrity. That's uh, what I get out of this so you can't. Uh, that's what if, I get out of this article. If it article. says on a
1: menu or anywhere else you go, this is raised with anti- without antibiotics, you have no idea whether that's true or not.
0: And when everybody is getting a cut... You know, from the rancher to yeah. the, you know. Everybody's
1: making more everybody's money.
0: Everybody's making more money no with that label. And yet nobody's testing to make sure that that label really has the integrity mm. that it should.
1: Great. Okay. What else you got? Wow. Where's the good news?
0: That's coming next. Okay. Uh, not next, but uh, after this one. Okay. So this is the uh, written by Isabella Paz, P-A-Z, uh, published in the New York Times. The title is PFAS, or PFAS, The Forever Chemicals You Couldn't Escape even if you tried. Based on nothing more than their name, PFAS, or per- and polyfluoroalkyl substances, certainly don't sound like something you'd want to find in your burger wrapper. But according to a recent investigation by Consumer Reports, they're very much there, as well as in your salad bowl, fry bag, and sandwich wrap. So what are these virtually indestructible compounds created in a lab in 1938 by a 27-year-old chemist? And how worried do you need to be about them? Where are you most likely to run into this stuff? As one researcher put it, everywhere. PFAS are in your shampoo bottle, your stain-resistant couch, your dental floss, your bicycle lubricant. And when these multipurpose compounds are used in food packaging, they have a way of transferring to the food itself. To say that PFAS are difficult to avoid is an understatement. Although these substances have been in use for eight decades, regulators have only recently acquired the scientific understanding and technical capacity needed to test for them at the very low concentrations, measured in parts per trillion, at which they're present in food. Nathan's Famous began phasing out PFAS from its wrappers in 2020, completely eliminating its traditional red and green striped bags, the company said, and will stop using products that include PFAS by design before the end of the year. McDonald's and Burger King said they were committed to removing all PFAS from their packaging by the end of 2025. From packaging and products, PFAS has found their way into rainwater, soil, sediment, ice caps, and outdoor and indoor plants. The substances have been detected in the living tissues of animals around the world. It's in the Arctic, it's in the polar bears, it's in trees, it's at the bottom of the ocean. We have literally polluted our planet with PFAS. Okay, but why are they everywhere? Perrin polyfluoroalkyl substances are a group of over 1,000 chemical compounds that were discovered in 1938 by a young chemist named Roy Plunkett, who was working at DuPont at the time. Their first use was as a nonstick agent in Teflon. They have since been added to an array of products to make them resistant to heat, water, oil, and corrosion. The chemical composition of PFAS, they are created by fusing carbon and fluorine atoms, makes the compounds practically unbreakable. And because they don't easily degrade, they can accumulate in our bodies and the environment when ingested or otherwise internalized. Their indestructible nature also means that they can cross-contaminate everything they touch. And everything they touch is, well, virtually everything. It can take 4 to 15 years for levels of PFAS to reduce by half in the human body, and it can take centuries for the substances to disappear from the environment. A net zero PFAS concentration is impossible. So should you be worried? Long-term exposure to PFAS has been linked to an increased risk of some cancers, immune system suppression, and problems with fetal development. Some PFAS contain compounds that could accumulate in the lungs and have been linked to more severe cases of covid Once they get into the body, they like to hang out in the blood because they like to stick to the proteins in our blood and interact with all sorts of different molecules. That's why scientists think they produce the health effects that they do. In short, we will never get rid of them, at least not in our lifetimes. Most current PFAS regulations concern how much of the chemicals can be present in water, but regulations for their use in products have generally been handled at a state level. In October, the Biden administration revealed a plan to combat PFAS pollution. In the same month, the Environmental Protection Agency also released a, quote, PFAS strategic roadmap in which it laid out plans for further research into PFAS and for the development of usage guidelines. But advocates say this might be too little too late. Melanie Benish, a legislative lawyer with the Environmental Working Group, said in an interview, quote, The first evidence that PFOS were toxic to the body was submitted to the FDA by DuPont, where the chemicals were created in 1966, but the reports did not immediately spur new regulation. That resulted in the ultimate lack of regulation and has left us scrambling to try and address this issue now. This was really a preventable crisis, end quote.
1: 64 years ago, DuPont said these chemicals are hazardous.
0: They told the FDA.
1: And the government's done nothing. 64 years.
0: But the reports did not immediately spur new regulation. Really? You
1: know, it's tough to blame DuPont completely when the government's been sitting there on its hands, and now we have a worldwide pollution problem with PFAS chemicals, thousands and thousands of them, because the government failed to act. They could have done this a long time ago and saved billions and billions of the taxpayer dollars that are going to be required to clean this up if we can clean it up at all. We may not be able to do it.
0: Not in our lifetime. I mean, a half-life is like, if you start with 100, oh. if you have a half-life of 15 years and you have 100 parts per million, right? In 15 years, you're going to have 50 parts per million. That's what that means. A half-life yeah. of 50. Yeah. Of...
1: Wow. Okay. All right.
0: So... This is a problem. You know, there are some, and there, you know, there's some pictures in this article that are really important because, you know, PFAS has been found in brands of yoga pants and sports bras, <laughs> other types of athletic apparel.
1: Where's the article, Patty, so people can find it? New York it? Times. No, okay. Yeah. All right. Now, do we have some good news finally?
0: A little are we, bit. Are we getting Just a little there? bit. It's, okay. Yeah, a little bit. Okay. This was written by Peter Dykstra, and it was published in Environmental Health News, and it's called Changing Energy Winds." Environmental headlines can be bleak, but good news is out there too. From renewable projects to plastic treaties, here are some dashes of hope for our planet. More than a decade ago, the North American environmental movement threw much of its limited clout against a single project. The Keystone XL pipeline would expedite delivery of oil from Canada's tar sands to U.S. refineries along the Gulf Coast and make Canada a petrostate. Enter an army of writers, hellraisers, tribes, farmers, and lawyers who objected to the path, if not the very idea. President Biden finally stuck a fork in the project by revoking a crucial permit on his first day in office. Other oil and gas pipeline projects saw similar citizen uprisings. Expansion of the Dakota Access Pipeline from North Dakota shale fields to southern Illinois prompted massive protests and allegations of violence perpetrated by police. Plans for a pipeline from Alberta to Canada's east coast were abandoned. Fuel pipeline proposals fell in Pennsylvania, Virginia, and elsewhere. The nonprofit Investigate West recently looked at the billion-dollar potential for wind and solar jobs on tribal lands throughout the western U.S. In March, a U.S. government lease sale for offshore wind rights shattered records and expectations, drawing $4.37 billion in winning bids. Two major oil companies, European-based Total and Shell, were among the top bidders. U.S.-based oil giants were much less enthusiastic. Last year, Australia added to a global trend by declaring two massive new marine parks in the Indian Ocean. Surrounding the Cocos and Christmas Islands, the parks curtail commercial activities from other nations. Previous parks and reserves have been set by multiple nations in the Atlantic, Pacific, and Indian Oceans, as well as a Southern Ocean encircling Antarctica. Here's another one, a beacon of hope. The Empire State Building now runs completely on wind power. Not exactly. The realty trust that owns the building still buys its juice from the conventional grid, but it then buys the same amount from Green Mountain Energy's Clean Energy Program. Solar in West Virginia. Of course, the decline of big coal in the U.S. is at best a mixed bag without some economic hope in coal country. Last week in West Virginia, developers unveiled plans for the largest solar farm in the state in a sprawling former coal field. And ocean plastics. It's an issue where despair prevails, but even here we can see a glimmer. In March, a United Nations conference mandated the creation of a global treaty on plastics pollution. And there are more issues, both problems and solutions, identified by scientists, activists, and others, and brought to light by journalists like my colleagues here at EHN. Political challenges like environmental justice dot the global landscape, while environmental health phenomena break out of the lab and into our lives. Discoveries on the impacts of endocrine disruptors, forever chemicals like PFAS, and herbicides once thought benign, like glyphosate, may not be classic good news stories, but there's plenty of good in these problems being brought to light. Okay.
1: Yeah, that's okay. Good for Peter. Rounding up all the good news.
0: It was was my my shortest news item.
1: I I recognize (laughs) that. All right. Thanks, Patty. You're welcome. It only takes a split second for our eyes to transmit information to our brain, allowing us to see and recognize objects, how far away they are, how fast they're traveling, their color, shape, size, and so on. Our eyes can distinguish objects with almost no light and in bright sunshine, and they do it automatically without us having to do anything special. Our eyes can detect billions of colors, change focus from near to far and back again in fractions of a second, Recognize familiar patterns instantly and detect even the slightest motion in an otherwise still image Yes, the human eye is a marvel of engineering that no camera can match even with the best technology available But the incredible thing is that's only a part of what the eye actually does for us The eye is the body's clock informing our inner systems about the time of day and what our body should be doing. It helps establish our circadian rhythm, our cycle of waking and sleeping, that triggers other functions in our bodies we are just beginning to understand. Dr. Joshua Rosenthal is board certified in both otolaryngology, head and neck surgery, and sleep medicine, as well as a fellow of the American College of Surgeons. His practice specializes in the treatment of adults and children in all aspects of otolaryngology, and he's a member of the American Academy of Sleep Medicine and the American College of Surgeons. We've had the privilege of knowing Josh for several years. We've been following his recent work concerning blue light, especially from computer screens, and we thought our Green Street audience would benefit from his experience and advice. We caught up with him last week. Here's our interview with Dr. Joshua Rosenthal.
2: Like everything in health, and wellness there is the you know the dichotomy of is blue light always bad or is blue light good or what you know what does that really mean what is blue light right so that's the the first question well blue light we're just talking about sunlight uh and the frequencies that are found within and blue light is one of the colors of the rainbow that exists when you step outside on a sunny day or any daytime hour and so blue frequencies of light from 400 nanometers to 500 nanometers to get a little geeky um, are are the, <clears throat> the spectrum. So the shades, the different colors, if you had your Crayola 64 color, you know, crayon box more than one blue in it. Right. And so there's many shades of blue in that uh, in that spectrum. And so that exists in nature. Uh, but it exists in conjunction with all the other colors of the rainbow in very specific ratios. The most important uh, other color being red light and infrared light, because those are very intimately tied to the biophysics of our our cellular functions and tend to actually be the antidote to some of the uh, intentional damage that blue light causes. So blue light does have a very high energy profile as far as the colors of the rainbow. Violet and blue are on one end and red is on the other. And so the the energy, this is a very high energy light compared to other colors of light, uh, can do some powerful things. And one of the things that blue light can do is it can photooxidize and that's just a fancy term for rust if you will. and nobody likes rust on your car and you can certainly imagine that rust doesn't sound like something you want in your body. Um, and so it can photooxidize uh, some of the lipids and membranes. Uh, it can actually uh, use that energy to change molecules from one molecule into a different through you know different enzymatic reactions. and some of those reactions, can create toxic intermediates. And so when you hear that, you say, oh my God, blue light is horrible, it's terrible. Um, But of course, in nature's uh, divine wisdom, nature used uh, that signal to be the signal to turn on certain switches. And um, of course, since it was found in conjunction with red light, those switches were turned on, but then also partly mitigated so that there would not be so much damage. So now we just took the example of the sun and how blue light from the sun is not necessarily harmful. And now we walk inside and we turn on our overhead uh, compact fluorescent or LED lights, or we turn on our screen or LED screens. And we say, well, how is this different? Well, um, if I had a spectrometer, which breaks down the components of the rainbow for light, and I looked at these screens and these overhead lights, what I would see is instead of a nice even smattering of all the different colors, and it's not a perfect you know, one-to-one ratio in, in sunlight, but it's, we'll just exaggerate it like that for this example over an audio format. Uh, all of a sudden we see these spikes and there's a big spike of blue and there's a medium spike of green, and then that's kind of it. Um, so the, the picture is, if you saw a picture of the sunlight and how it comes uh, in terms of the ratios of the different colors. And you looked at an LED light bulb, you'd find out they're very, very different. And there's no red light at all in the LED. That's what makes it energy efficient. Red light is thermally uh, wasteful, but that red light is very important from a health standpoint. So energy efficient lights have eliminated that. So all of a sudden we now have this situation where we have about four times as much of the blue frequencies of light and really zero to very little at all red infrared light present. And so, so that doesn't exist in nature but it exists mm. indoors when we get to that. So all of those kind of scary sounding terms that I used that are actually part of nature's divine plan to help, you know, stimulate growth patterns and and other good things that we would all say, you know, we, we want to develop and not stay as an infant for our entire life. So we we use these switches to promote growth and, and other things. But when we have it in an unfettered, you know, unmitigated form, as we do when we go indoors, all of a sudden, these negative effects really compound and become very uh, significant for for our health.
0: So what what you're saying in in very simplistic terms is that when you're outdoors and you're exposed to blue light, you're also being exposed to the other colors of the of the spectrum which mitigate the harmful effects of that blue light. But once you're indoors, you don't have that balance anymore. Is that
2: correct? That is correct. There are other technical differences which are also important, but from a very simplistic view, if we're just looking at the color palette that we're exposed to, it's very, very different. It would be as if I said, I want you to paint a picture, but you only can get two colors, uh, and you want to paint a picture where you need all the colors uh, to paint it. So Right. Very, very different experience when you walk inside, even though your personal experience is, oh, there's white light coming down. You know, when you go outside, you don't say, oh, there's a rainbow of colors. You say there's white light. It's just illuminated. When you go inside, again, you just feel, oh, there's white light. I do think the only way that we kind of perceive these different color changes is if you hear the terms warm and cooling lights, uh, Mm -hmm. we're talking about this color temperature scale with Kelvin, Um, warmer lights tend to have less blue light frequency component um, and often have a little more on heading towards the red side. And so that gives you the warming and it has more of an RNG glow, like a candlelight or a fire. Mm -hmm. Whereas cool lights, which is what people this cool, crisp, bright uh, feeling kind of screen, which I remember when I, before I knew all this, that's what I was. you know, you like that screen. You did not want that kind of dim, not so bright screen, but those cooling are usually very, very powerful blue frequencies that are standing out with, with much, much, much less to zero uh, on the opposite side where the red is. So that's how people, you know, an incandescent light seems more orange than uh, an LED light. And that, that yellowish orange glow is the, is the spectrum that's on the red side kind of filling in some extra details and that's how you experience it
0: right so so now we need to talk about why is this harmful to the human body to be to be limited to just these these cool and crisp blue
2: white um lights yeah so it's you know, again, this is all based on nature. Nature is the, uh, is the blueprint that we have to follow. I mean, I certainly was not asked my opinion on how to construct the, the body's uh, electromagnetic system and, and circadian system. So, but how does it work? Well, nature chose, among other things, the biggest component of how to run your body's timing system with blue light. Um, since blue light is only found during the daytime and it's not found after sun set um, you are designed to have no blue light exposure after the sun goes down yet you just heard very clearly that you can walk inside and turn on any single light in your house and most likely that will have a significant component of blue light that usually would only be found that high of a color temperature blue light around noon so if you walk in your house at eight o'clock at night and turn on the lights there's to a certain degree you are stimulating a noontime color temperature, which clearly seems to be a mismatch. The, the most basic way of understanding how some of this works is one is this is now definitely excessive blue light. I would suggest that even being indoors all day when blue light is out in the sun, that the ratios of blue light are too much anyway, but ignoring that fact, so you now you're starting to get some of these photo-oxidation effects of some of the lipids in your eye and your skin. And, and these are important components to transmitting the circadian signal. So not only is it damaging these lipids, but these lipids are part of the signal transduction of the circadian rhythm. What does that mean? That means not only you're hurting yourself, but you're hurting the ability to tell time tomorrow as well, because the the mechanisms and the gears that tell time are getting damaged. Uh, But the most basic way of understanding this is melatonin. Melatonin being way more important than just being a hormone of sleep. It is important as an anti-cancer drug. It's one of the most powerful brain antioxidants. And um, it is important in stimulating the regenerative response that humans need, because I did tell you earlier that essentially living is to a certain degree rusting. And uh, we rust during the day and we kind of repair that rust at night. And if the balance is good, we can live a long life. And if the, the repair is poor, we're going to age faster and get disease sooner and earlier. So, this melatonin is all uh, stimulated or suppressed by blue light at night. So, if you have blue light, the system is very delicately programmed to detect frequencies of light between four and five hundred at maximal, uh, and I would probably even say like four thirty to four sixty-five nanometer of light most most powerfully. But even other frequencies and even very very minute amounts even into red spectrums but nonetheless blue light is the most powerful suppressor of melatonin it works again to be geeky it works through a, a photoreceptor called melanopsin which is found in your eyes it's found in your skin it's found in your blood vessels it's found probably will be found everywhere in your body so that we have this receptor available to tell time and it's it's probably in every cell uh, of our body to be honest that yet has yet to been found, found there but those are the places we know. So when we're exposed to blue light, we suppress our ability to make melatonin. It takes four hours of darkness to make melatonin. So when the sun goes down, we technically start producing melatonin. And uh, if you go inside and are exposed to blue light, you don't start making melatonin. So natural humans that live the typical technologic life that uh, most do, uh, probably their first experience of darkness. And by darkness, I mean, the absence of blue light occurs when they shut the lights and go to sleep at whatever time that is. And so that event should have happened at sundown, from from, you know, the way humans were designed to interact with the environment. And so therein lies that those four hours of melatonin production that you didn't make, well, what what's the consequence of that? Mm. Well, now you start to see, okay, so we're, we're constantly not making this hormone that gives us this deep sleep that you know helps to clean up toxins in the brain, clean up the garbage and the you know all the junk that's in there. This is helping prevent cancer. This is helping us to regenerate. If we have a deficiency of making that every single night for you know entirety of our lives, what does that mean? And I think if you look at the healthcare crisis we have, I think that is an expression of of this effect. Um, it's it's nonlinear, and what that means is since light works in a non-linear fashion, it means one plus one doesn't have to equal two. One plus one could equal a hundred. And therein lies the problem that these very small, seemingly insignificant changes can have huge effects. Now they don't happen instantly. And that's why, you know, you don't feel uh, the change when you stay up under blue light all night and go to sleep at, at your normal bedtime. But if you actually lived in sync with nature, you would actually notice the difference, but it's happened slowly. I mean, you know, even in our youths, we, we experienced the incandescent light bulb, which actually has much less blue light frequency and way more uh, red uh, light frequencies than the current technologies that most use. But even that was a mismatch. It was just not as much blue light toxin causing as much damage, but it was adjusting that circadian mechanism and affecting it. So we, we have a big problem because we essentially have this chronic deficiency of one of the natural processes that are made to give us longevity. And then there's, you know, a whole host of things that can go wrong after that.
1: You're listening to Green Street, the environmental health show with Patty and Doug Wood. And our guest today is sleep and light specialist and ENT surgeon Joshua Rosenthal. We'll be right back after a short break. Welcome back to Green Street, the Environmental Health Show. Patty and Doug Wood, and our guest today is sleep and light specialist and ENT surgeon Dr. Joshua Rosenthal.
0: So, <laughs> so if you if you walk around a neighborhood at night after the sun has gone down, you see in open windows or through blinds that are that are open all of this blue light emanating from these rooms in houses. I would say almost every single house because they've got these screens on and you're actually seeing the blue light coming through the window. So it's almost a ritual, you know, for kids to get on a screen and play a video game or, you know, do whatever it is they're doing on those screens. But they do that until they until they go to bed.
2: Well, you, yeah, what you're saying is, is beautiful is that it's difficult on so many levels of our culture right you could say okay well first you know my kid wants to watch tv watch netflix play playstation or xbox and there's you know there's other levels to that that not only is the blue light but most of these things are bluetooth or wi-fi or cellular so that's a whole nother nother another podcast but the point is so now you have that layer added on but yes these kids are playing these video games all hours of the night these games are designed to be Addictive based on the, 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 the play style, but they're also addictive based on the photonics, meaning the blue light actually stimulates in the brain the type of neurotransmitters that, that make you addicted to it. So it is somewhat addicting in and of itself by the light. So it doesn't, the content doesn't even matter. Mm. You, you know, most people think that the, uh, these violent video games are what's causing the violence. I would suggest it's the neurochemical changes that occur from the blue light. You could actually be playing, you know, rainbows and unicorn games all night. That in and of itself will mess up the neurochemistry of your brain and and cause you to have a different uh, experience of reality. So staying up all night. So then you say, okay, well, I'm going to be I'm aware of this. So now I'm going to just try to limit the light. Well, again, limiting the light is good, but it's still not solving the problem. And let's say you go to the next level of extreme, you say, okay, we're going to shut off all lights when the sun goes down. And that's great. But like you said, you have street lamps outside and there's already evidence that, you know, street lamps outside of your house are contributing to an increased risk of breast cancer and increased risk of thyroid cancer. So this is, this is really powerful. If you realize that the light from outside your house coming through the windows, which is obviously farther away and a small amount of light can, can increase these risks of cancer, you have to say, what about the lights that I have on at night after sundown? How powerful are those, you know? So there's a definite problem. It's, it's just harder to, from an epidemiologic standpoint, to have a control group, because there's very few people who probably live um, very aware and attuned to controlling this light environment you know, like I would recommend. So,
0: yeah, you
2: know what, Josh, yeah. one
0: of the times that I saw you at a public event, uh, I think I would giving a presentation about, I think it was about microwave radiation, yes, RF radiation. And- we were inside a you know a, a library and it had fluorescent bulbs and and probably LEDs in other fixtures because this is what we're told is the is the right thing to do as far as energy savings is concerned, because LEDs last longer and you know they put out more light and less heat, whereas a incandescent bulb is the exact opposite, it puts out more heat than light, blah, blah, blah. Um, but you actually had red glasses on. I remember that.
2: Yes. So they're really more of an orange amber color. And, uh, what do those lenses do? Those are my nighttime blue blocking lenses. Mm-hmm. Those block from, uh, 400 to 500 nanometer blue light frequencies, a hundred percent because my circadian system, everyone's circadian, not just mine. It was programmed not, yeah, to, everyone. to not have this right. And, um, yeah it does it does make me you know look a little funny uh, i remember a time i had to run into a cvs or something to buy something really quick and uh, there was a, a, a younger i don't know if they were teen or, or young adult you know stock people you know doing their thing on one of the aisles and uh, i walked down one aisle looking for whatever i was looking for then went down the next aisle And I could hear them. They said, oh, why is he wearing his sunglasses? What he thinks He's so cool. And so it's the exact opposite. You know, in other words, I'm not wearing sunglasses. I'm wearing anti sunglasses. Right. And um, and again, that's just a misunderstanding of how it really all works, because right. You know, most doctors are taught the biochemistry and and the biochemistry completely ignores this this light and uh, electron and biophysics. So, yeah, so okay, it's so it's a way I, to start to protect yourself. That's yeah, one technique. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So, you know, I, I really want to be talking a little bit now to parents and why are children if they are more vulnerable to this, you know, without having this uh, optimal melatonin production going on? What's actually happening in their bodies? And why are they more vulnerable if they are?
2: Yes, so you know what's really interesting when you understand this biophysics side, uh, and you look into it is there was a, a an ophthalmologist by the name of Dr. Holwich who I believe in the '50s or '60s published a lot of his research on um, cataract surgery, and at that time they were not putting lenses back in to people's eyes; uh, they were just taking the cataracts out, and he studied before and after. Um, all kinds of different endocrine functions and urinary markers and blood levels. And what did he fi- find? He found that instantly after cataract removal, there were neurohormonal changes that he could detect in the blood urine instantly. Um, and they were all for the positive, meaning these people were going towards optimal levels away from their less optimal levels that they were at before. And what what am I saying? I'm saying that the light that was experienced through the eyes changed your hormone panel, changed your glucose sensitivity, your insulin levels, your, you name it, right? And he looked at all these things from a scientific clinical standpoint. So our eyes and the light exposure that we have really determines neuroendocrine function in our body and so what that means is why do we have uh, you know the questions that you know the, the healthcare system would have why do we have an epidemic of juvenile diabetes that we've never seen in, in the history of man? why do we have so many youngsters that are now insulin you know uh, resistant? well you know here here we have a generation that is what I would call the screen swiping generation you know you'll see, Two year olds in the stroller swiping on some sort of a screen device. And um, unfortunately, you know, the screen becoming the babysitter has exposed this sort of light and this sort of damaging effects of light to a developing child's hormonal system, to their neurochemistry. Children's brains are, are wiring um, in a more permanent way up until age six. And then even in a more semi-permanent way up until about 25. And this is why, you know, go rent a car uh, and you'll, you'll find out that, you know, there's a reason insurance rates for under 25 are, are greater. And it's because your brain hasn't fully myelinated yet. So even as an adult at 20, when you think you're so smart and we all were at that age once, um, you know, your brain wasn't fully myelinated and myelin, of course, is an insulation for the nerves. And what does that mean? That means your brain wasn't really fully protected from all these other frequencies, which we're not even addressing today in this conversation. So, you know, you really, when you start putting this together, you're saying, okay, so we're, we're messing up the hormones on a chronic level from the day of birth. And, and of course, this goes even beyond birth. It even happens, we're talking about, what about the mother even before birth? So in other words, To get really geeky, you know, these changes that the blue light uh, causes and some of the damage are happening on a cellular level in the mitochondria. And don't think that your chronic exposure as a mother to this blue light yourself isn't affecting the the unborn child's egg even before fertilization, right? So now we we can have damage to your eggs, damage to your hormones, which is also associated with all this infertility. So one of the reasons we're having all this infertility, there are connections to that. In a recent book chapter, I wrote, you know, there are papers showing that egg selection is connected to melatonin levels and and other circadian effects. So what are we saying? That even the egg you choose to make a baby with, which is not your conscious choice, we're talking about under the hood evolutionary mechanisms that are built into you, that egg selection is based on trying to pick the best egg for the, the environment you live in. If you tell your body you live in this toxic emf environment of light blue light and emf how can your body choose the best egg for that and so this is another reason um and so all of a sudden oh. now you have children that are born with a deficit that you don't even realize and then you stick them under these same toxins as they're developing and now we start to see wow autism rates explosion we see you know diseases in the youth exploding we see depression, anxiety exploding in the youth. We see this opioid crisis out of nowhere. We never had an opioid crisis. And you know we were troubled in our, in our youths as much as anybody else You know, generations ago, different issues. But so all these things, and you're starting to say, where is this coming from? And you start to see a little more clearly that there are connections to all of these.
1: Josh, why is it that we think of our eyes as a device by which we see things, period. We don't think that the light that's, that we see through our eyes is related to many other bodily functions, as you're pointing out. Why doesn't the medical community make more of a point? Why don't people know about this? Yeah,
2: it's, um, you know, I've been blessed to be around ophthalmologists and optometrists who are more aware about this, but it is a very small group to be sure. Um, most people are aware of the camera function of the eye. Um, and that's the main ticket when you're in med school and whatever form of medical or healthcare training you get, that's really what's taught. Um, Again, the lack of the biophysics in everything uh, that most practitioners go through for education is part of the problem, is that without integrating the biophysics, none of this makes sense because again, Mm -hmm. light, electrons, protons, photons, this is not biochemistry, this is not taught in any medical school. Um, this is, this is something you'd have to kind of drive off road and, 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 experience for yourself. And that's really how I came to this knowledge. It was certainly not handed to me in any of the trainings that I, you know, undertook to become a doctor. But so now we have, we have researched We know that there are cells in the eye, these intrinsically photoactive, uh, retinal ganglion cells, uh, that detect light frequencies that are then wired not to your visual cortex but to other parts of your brain. And we found up to five different subtypes of these these different types of cells. So in the retina, and so there are five different types of cells in the retina that are taking light information and communicating outside the visual cortex system. We know that some of them are for the circadian mechanism, but there's a lot more to it because there are groups of optometrists who use light to interact with your emotional and behavioral system and uh, can do amazing things. And I, I know some of these practitioners. So this is... Yeah, it, there's a lot more. And it, and it gets into the old, the old view of, you know, the eye through the soul through the eye. And it gets into religious and spiritual aspects. The eye really has a, another level of information that's transmitted directly to your brain. And it's not just camera.
1: So fascinating. I mean, it really is. So what do we do with all the kids that are, you know, sitting at night playing on their iPads, uh, playing on their phones, playing games and so on.
2: So, of course, the the best answer would be to stop that. And um, as a parent, I've struggled with, you know, these issues, you know, in trying to mitigate what I know to be scientifically proven health detriment versus uh, what I would call culturally and socially acceptable norms. And so it Mm -hmm. becomes a very challenging prospect, for sure. Um, The first thing is we can protect the eye, because that is one of the key. Uh, obviously there is, the, these blue light receptors are more than just in the eye, but the first place, the eye is, is essentially part of the brain. So I want to protect the brains first. So wearing some sort of protection to eliminate these harmful frequencies, especially after sundown. I mean, when my son was a little more, uh, I will not say addicted, but in that period of his life where he was you know, trying to play, it was immediately after school and then the time was up and that was over. Why? Because that's the closest time that that light is exposed in real nature. So I don't want Mm -hmm. to playing if I had the choice of him playing at 4 p.m. or playing at 8 p.m. or playing at 10 p.m. Mm -hmm. Which one is better? Well, the earlier is the better. Right. So that's Mm -hmm. the first thing. So but even then uh, there are other downsides. But so glasses uh, that block the particular frequencies of blue light uh, are helpful. And you'll see that, you know, the gaming industry is a little more aware of it. And you'll see yellow tinted frames. These block about 40% of the blue light frequencies. And, and I would say during daylight hours, um, that would be something I could get behind because you know, you are meant to be exposed to blue light during the day. Obviously, the ratios are way uh, skewed indoors and in front of screens. So daytime blue blocking glasses that have a yellow tint would be the first uh, option. The second option would be is that again, after sundown, uh, wearing nighttime blue blocking glasses, which are designed to block different and more frequencies. Um, again, this is gonna change the user experience. So when they're playing a game and they wanna see the color blue, they're not gonna see blue. It's gonna look like this dark, you know, a different shade. And, and I've been doing this for so long, I can almost translate in my brain what the real colors are. I can think of, you know, you know if you're watching a, a, you know, a yeah, game, yeah, a basketball absolutely. game. Yeah, yeah, you watch a basketball game and the Knicks are wearing blue jersey, it's not blue, but in your head, you know, it's a blue Jersey. So you kind of, you, you know, it's like a colorblind fixing the the problem, you know, it should be red. So you say, well, that's supposed to be red. Um, but yeah, yeah, the kids are going to complain about it. I can guarantee, you know, there's no way they're going to say, Oh, this is great. But the other option is there are some devices that, um, you could put a screen over the, uh, you could put a, a film or a protective covering, uh, over the screen, so So you could put something over the TV screen. So Uh if you don't block the eyes, you could block the screen. Same problems are gonna be there, but uh, they're not gonna like the color changes. But again, that is another uh, way of doing it. There are some devices that can be attached in line with the HDMI signal of the television to eliminate some of these colors. Most of them are usually not designed to be um, super appropriate in terms of the The exactness and the intensity of blocking these frequencies, but again, another way to do it something called Drift TV. So, there are ways, uh, there's software that you can install on your computers that also, again, will eliminate these frequencies, uh, and they'll match it with the timing of sundown. So, you know, during the day, you can have a more normal experience, and then as the sun goes down, it will transition to eliminating, you know, the, the light frequencies.
0: So what, what are those apps? I know that that's the easiest thing yes. for people to do. Um
2: and, and I list these, uh, uh, you know, I have links to these things on on uh, one of my websites. But yeah, uh, Just Get Flux was something that I, uh, was the website that I started with. Flux uh, is a software that does that. Um, it does not do as well as something called Iris, I-R-I-S, which is a blue light blocking software, but it also blocks... And mitigate some of the flicker effects that these screens have so that's an added layer we didn't talk about that, but that if you just recognize that a fluorescent light when you look up at it it's really flickering about 100 times per second. uh, Then you and you just don't recognize that flicker but we've all uh, now with the, the phones and the slow mo we've all seen flickering lights when we watch the slow mo's back, but you just don't see that in your cognition of the light when you. You know our, our experience in real time but so these lights are all flickering and that also has detrimental effects so again we're, blocking blue light does not mitigate the flickering effects of these uh, lights as well mm-hmm. so you could start to see that wow this really is more complicated because even when you block blue light you're still letting in some harmful frequencies and the frequencies are the pulse rate of the, the flicker rate of the light as well
1: You've been listening to Green Street, the environmental health show, Patty and Doug Wood, and our guest today has been sleep and light specialist and ENT surgeon, Dr. Joshua Rosenthal. If you missed any part of today's Green Street show, you can always listen again on our program website, greenstreetradio.com, where you can sign up for our program alerts and give us feedback on the show. That's www.greenstreetradio, all one word, greenstreetradio.com. That's going to do it for this edition of Green Street. Special thanks to our guest, Dr. Joshua Rosenthal, and our assistant producer, Ellen Weiniger. Patty and I will be back next week with another edition of Green Street. Until then, be safe, be well, we'll see you next time.